grace and peace to you friends. Welcome to the Oak Tree Journeys. My name is Mandy Oaks and this is the Encyclopedia Challenge Season 1 Episode 79. That's right, we are one away from Episode 80. I cannot believe it. But thank you so much for joining me. Today is August 28th of 2022. I wanted to thank everyone uh, who's listening. I noticed I've got a few more countries um, listed uh, from my listeners, so thank you so, so much. Uh, I just can't believe it. I'm astounded by how many people are listening and where you are. I mean, it is just absolutely amazing. So I want to thank my uh, regular listeners uh, who stuck with me and my new listeners, and I hope my new listeners, I hope you stick with me too. It looks like we've got Listeners from the Czech Republic, Ukraine, France, India, Denmark, Saudi Arabia, Australia, Germany, Nigeria, uh, in addition to the United States. So just thank you so much. And if you are new here, you may be wondering, what is the Encyclopedia Challenge? I'm not sure what I've stumbled on. And that's a fair thing to wonder and to question. The Encyclopedia Challenge is where I read the Encyclopedia to you. We read from two different encyclopedias, the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 and the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So if you enjoy words, if you enjoy learning, if you've always wanted to just sit down and read the encyclopedia, but you haven't had the time, this podcast is for you. Uh, and if you are new and you've missed several of our, you missed, well, 78 of our podcasts, I would encourage you to go to my website and select Encyclopedia Challenge and just select. You can even start from the beginning and look at the words. Uh, there's also a podcast link. Um, and my website, you need that, is theoaktreejourneys.com. And that is the, T-H-E, oak, O-A-K, Tree, T-R-E-E, Journeys, J-O-U-R-N-E-Y-S dot com, C-O-M. And the, the uh, link is in the description. So my website is in the description below, as is my email address. So if you do want to contact me, feel free to email me. That is actually the best way to contact me. Uh, my email address is mandyoaks at protonmail.com. It's just my first and last name, Mandy. M-A-N-D-Y, Oaks, O-A-K-S, at Proton, P-R-O-T-O-N, mail, M-A-I-L, dot com, C-O-M. And again, that, that is also in the description below. So if you're driving, which I typically listen to my podcasts while I'm driving, um, don't write anything down while you're driving, but when you're, if you are driving, everything is in the description. So if you want to give my website a visit, fantastic. If you want to write to me, even better. Uh, so either either way, and I do have bonuses up, um, mostly from last year. Uh, we haven't gotten to do very many bonuses this year. Uh, time just has not allowed me to, but we, we do have some bonuses. But the reason you are here is not to hear me ramble on and on and on about my website, uh, which is a good place to go if you want to know how any of these entries are spelled, because a lot of them are not spelled the same way they are pronounced. Trust me on that. I've tried pronouncing them the way they are spelled, and it is incorrect. And you can laugh at me. That's fine. I laugh at myself all the time for my misspellings uh, or mis mispronunciations. I should say not misspellings, but my mispronunciations. 
Um, so yes, you could definitely, definitely laugh. If you like a good laugh, hearing someone from the South mispronounce lots of big words, you've come to the right place as well. But we've got something for everyone. Okay, today is August 28th. It is Sunday, and I am just super, super excited. This is the last Sunday of August. I cannot believe September is right around the corner. I, I, and I'm sure you guys can't believe it either. Some people are excited. You know, that means Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, a new year next year. Uh, some of us are just like, ah, this year has just flown by. What's going on? But, you know, we can't stop time. We, we could try. We could try to stop time. Maybe God will allow someone to stop time sometime. But but uh, the reality is, is we can't really stop time without some type of intervention from God. So time's just going to carry on. Uh, and thankfully we are not stuck in, what is that show called? Uh, I'll think of it in a minute. Where time just is on a loop and you just live the same day over and over and over again. Thankfully we're not there. At least not that we know of. Okay, but our quote of the month, and this is the last day you will hear the, this quote of the month by Donna Hedges. And I think it's perfect, especially for the coming Thanksgiving. And I, I could have saved it for Thanksgiving. In fact, I could have saved it for anything. It is just perfect. It, it could be for Christmas, but it's just a perfect saying that she has. Donna Hedges said, having a place to go is a home. Having someone to love is a family. Having both is a blessing. And again, she said, having a place to go is a home. Having someone to love is a family. Having both is a blessing. I just love that by Donna Hedges. Okay, our first five entries are Andre, Salomon, Auguste, Andre's Balloon Polar Expedition, Andrini, Giovanni Battista, Andrea Light, and Andreosi, Antoine Francois Comte Count. And we are going to be switching uh, between the two encyclopedias uh, throughout this whole uh, session. So this whole podcast, we are going to be switching back and forth. But I have some really cool bonuses throughout this whole podcast. So I'm super, super excited. So let's go ahead and get started. For number one, Andre, Salomon, August. We are going to read from both encyclopedias. So we're going to start with in 1909. So Salomon, Auguste, Andre. From the 1909, he was a Swedish aeronaut born in Grena, 1854 on October 18th. His date of death is unknown. He was educated in Stockholm. In 1882, he took part in a Swedish meteorological expedition in Spitsbergen. In 1884, he was appointed chief engineer to the patent office. And from 1886 to 1889, he accompanied a professor's chair at Stockholm. In 1892, he received from the Swedish Academy of Sciences a subvention for the purpose of undertaking scientific aerial navigation. From that time, he devoted himself to aerial navigation making his first ascent at Stockholm in the summer of 1893. In 1895, he presented to the Academy of Sciences a well-matured project for exploring the regions of the North Pole. And we're going to find out more about this a little later. 
of the North Pole with the aid of a balloon at an estimated cost of about $40,000. A national subscription was opened, which was completed in a few days, the King of Sweden contributing the sum of $8,280, with two companions, Dr. S.T. Strindberg and Herr Frinknell, Andre started from Danes Island, Spitsbergen, in 1897, July 11th. His balloon was 67 and a quarter feet in diameter, with a capacity of 170,000 cubic feet. Its speed was estimated at from 12 to 15 miles an hour, at which rate the pole should have been reached in six days, provided a favorable and constant wind had been blowing. Two days after his departure, a message was received from Dr. Andrea by Carrier Pigeon, which stated that at noon, July 13th, they were in latitude 82.2 degrees and longitude 15.5 degrees east and making good progress to the east, 10 degrees southerly. Several expeditions sent in search of Andrea have returned without obtaining any further intelligence of the explorer. And again, we are going to find out more about that a little later. But let's go ahead and switch over to the 1956 encyclopedia to see what they have to say about uh, this man, Solomon Auguste André, Swedish aeronaut, born in Grena, 18th of October, 1854, lost in the Arctic region after 13th July, 1897. He was educated in Stockholm. In 1882, he took part in a Swedish meteorological expedition to Spitsbergen. In 1884, he was appointed chief engineer to the patent office, and from 1886 to 1889, he occupied a professor's chair at Stockholm. In 1892, he received from the Swedish Academy of Sciences a subvention for the purpose of undertaking scientific aerial navigation. From that time, he devoted himself to aerial navigation, making his first ascent at Stockholm in the summer of 1893. In 1895, he presented to the Academy of Sciences a well-matured project for exploring the regions of the North Pole with the aid of a balloon at an estimated cost of about $40,000. So far, sounds all the same. So let's see if it stays the same. A national subscription was opened, which was completed in a few days, the King of Sweden contributing the sum of $8,280. With two companions, Nils Strindberg and Nut Frankel, Andreas started from Danes Island, Spitsbergen, 11th July, 1897. His balloon was 67 and a quarter feet in diameter, with a capacity of 170,000 cubic feet. Its speed was estimated at from 12 to 15 miles an hour, Seems really slow now, doesn't it? At which rate the pole should have been reached in six days, provided a favorable and constant wind had been blowing. Two days after his departure, a message was received from Dr. Andrea by carrier pigeon, which stated that at noon, 13th of July, they were in latitude 82.2 degrees and longitude 15.5 degrees east, and making good progress to the east 10 degrees southerly. In 1930, the body of André was found by the Horn Arctic Expedition and brought back to Stockholm, where it was cremated 10th of October, 1930. So that is the part that differs, and we are going to read more about that. Uh, what's really cool is in my 1909 encyclopedia, there are two newspaper articles that were cut out about this. So we are going to read about those. We're going to read those newspaper articles throughout the podcast. Um, I'm not going to read them 
right now, um, I'm going to wait and just kind of spread it out a little bit. Okay, with that, let's go ahead and go to the 1909, um, the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary for number two, Andrea's Balloon Polar Expedition. Let's see what else they have to say about this expedition. Novel and daring enterprise in aeronautics. Professor S.A. Andrea, examiner-in-chief of the Royal Patent Office of Sweden, had cherished since 1876 the plan of reaching the North Pole by balloon from Spitsbergen, thence passing on to land in Siberia, Alaska, or British America. After long study of aeronautics and numerous experiments, he at last secured subscriptions amounting to $37,000, of which $10,000 was expended for the balloon. This was made of varnished silk, 75 feet in height, or 97 feet to the bottom of the basket. The balloon was provided with sails and rudders and with drag ropes, 1,000 to 1,200 feet in length, designed at once to aid in steering it, and by its weight, to keep it at a nearly uniform distance of about 500 feet from the earth. Professor Andrea expected to pass the pole in about 42 hours and reach continental land in about six weeks. A start was made from Spitsbergen, 1897 on July 11th. The last heard from him was two days later when a carrier pigeon reported him in latitude 82.2 degrees, longitude 1.5 degrees east. Think about that for just a second about the carrier pigeon. We have text messaging now. We have Snapchat. We have WhatsApp. We have um, some other thing. Uh, someone wanted me to. Someone got me on um, that all my friends are suddenly on. Um, we've got Google Chat. We've got Zoom. We've got cell phones. We we can make calls, but he had to use a carrier pigeon. So just just let that sink in for just a minute. Um, a carrier pigeon. Okay, did you let that sink in? That is just astounding. Um, um, and it makes me wonder, I'm just going to throw this out there, what are our future generations going to use? Are they going to be even more tech savvy and use like holograms and teleportation devices? Or, uh, as it seems to be sometimes, <laughs> Are we going to go backwards and use some something similar to a carrier pigeon, but not quite the same as a carrier pigeon? Is, is some scientist going to create some sort of weird hummingbird thing um, or Pony Express? What what is the future going to look like? Um, and if you want to weigh in there and let me know, are we going to go continue going forward um, with? holograms and all of that, or are we going to just fall completely backwards? Uh, so just, you know, let me know. Uh, you can email me at mandyoaks at protonmail.com if you want to weigh in on that. I'm curious as to your thoughts. I think it could go either way. Go either way. So, number four. Andrini, Giovanni Battista, or Giovanni Battista Andrini, and we are in the 1909 still for him. He was an Italian comedian and poet, born in Florence in 1578. He died in Paris about 1650. From his sacred drama, Adam, in 1613, Milton is by some supposed to have derived the idea of Paradise Lost. Sorry, I said that a little weird, Paradise Lost. That's pretty cool. 
training. Right, number four, we are switching back to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 for number four, and it's Andreolite. Andreolite is uh, from Andreesburg in the Harz Mountains, and it's a mineral better known as harmatome. So it's a harmatome, or it's, or it's harmatome. <laughs> but Andreolite is one name, and harmatome is another name for it. Number five is another person, Andreosi, Antoine, Francois, Count, or Count, Francois, Antoine, Andreosi. And we are switching back to the 1909. So we're going to go back and forth, back and forth a lot. And he was a French general and statesman, born Castle Nottery in Languedoc. In 16, I'm sorry, 1761, March 6th. He died at Montauban in 1828, September 10th. He entered the artillery in 1781, joined the revolutionists, served under Bonaparte in Italy and Egypt, and took part in the revolution of the 18th Brumaire. He was ambassador at London, at Vienna, and at Constantinople, from which latter post he was recalled at the Restoration. He was raised to the peerage by Napoleon after his return from Elba. After Waterloo, he advocated the recall of the Bourbons, hold on, Bourbons, sorry, Bourbons, but as deputy, generally took part with the opposition. He was elected to the Academy in 1826. He was a man of eminent scientific attainments, one of his earliest works being the History General of the Canal du Mida. I was trying to, uh, let's see, Historia General du Canal du Midi in 1800. I was trying to put that in English, but I realized I don't know what Midi is. And number, oh, that was number five. Uh, so let's go ahead and go to break because I am getting super tongue-tied and I need something to drink. So we'll be back shortly. Welcome back. Our next set of five entries are Andrew, the Apostle, Andrew, James Osgood, Andrew, John Albion, LLD, Andrew, Saint, Order of, Andrew of Crete or Jerusalem, Saint. And we are in the 1909 encyclopedia for Andrew, the Apostle or the Apostle Andrew. And... Where did, oh, there it is. <laughs> Lost it for a second. The first disciple of Christ, like his brother Peter, a fisherman. Previous to his recognition of Christ as the Messiah, he had been numbered among the disciples of John the Baptist. See John 1, 40 and 41. The career of Andrew as an apostle after the death of Christ is unknown. Tradition tells us that after preaching the gospel in Scythia, northern Greece, and Epirus, he suffered martyrdom on the cross at a tree in Achaia, 62 or 70, uh, that would be A.D., I believe. A cross formed of beams obliquely placed is styled St. Andrew's Cross. In early times, a spurious supplement to the Acts of the Apostles was circulated among certain sects under the title Acta Andrea. Andrew is the patron saint of Scotland and is greatly venerated in Russia as the apostle who, according to tradition, first preached the gospel in that country. His day in the calendar is number 30. Or, um, oh, I'm sorry, 
November 30th. So his day is November 30th. Um, so I'm going to read John 1, 40 and 41. It's just really short. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he, now I'm going to go ahead and read 42. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, so when he looked at Simon Peter, uh, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated as stone. So it's pretty short there. Okay, and number seven, James Osgood Andrew. So for him, we go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And I've got a lot of notes here. Okay, James Osgood Andrew. He was an American Methodist bishop, born Wilkes County, Georgia, on the 3rd of May, 1794. Uh, he died in Mobile, Alabama, the 1st of March in 1871. He was an itinerant preacher in South Carolina from 1816 till consecrated bishop in 1832. His marital connection was said to have been the immediate cause of the division of the Methodist Episcopal Church into North and South. His second wife, whom he married in 1844, was a slaveholder, and the general conference of that year resolved that he should desist from the exercise of his office, on the ground that the fact of his wife's owning slaves would greatly embarrass, if not in some places entirely prevent, the exercise of this office. The Southern delegates protesting against this action, the difficulty was settled only by dividing the churches and property into the Northern and Southern jurisdiction. Bishop Andrew adhered to the South, retiring from active work in 1868. That's pretty sad because the Bible does not condone slavery, um, so he should have known better. Definitely should have known better, but... Let's move uh, on to Andrew, John Albion, LLD, and he is from the 1909. So we're going to switch to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. Let me make sure I've got the right one here. Okay, so John Albion, Andrew, LLD, statesman. He was born 1818 and May 31st, died 1867, October 30th. He was born in Wyndham, Maine. He graduated at Bowden College, studied law in Boston, and was admitted to the bar. He gained celebrity for his defense of those who were arrested under the Fugitive Slave Law of 1851. He was elected to the legislature in 1858. In 1860, he was a delegate to the Republican Convention at Chicago, which nominated Abraham Lincoln for president. In the same year, he was elected governor of Massachusetts and was annually re-elected until 1866, when he declined the nomination. He was active in raising troops for the U.S. government during the rebellion, and within a week after the President's Proclamation of 1861, April 15th, dispatched five regents of artillery, a battalion of riflemen, and a battery of artillery to Washington. He drew up the address presented to the President by the governors of the loyal states in convention in Altoonie, Pennsylvania, in 1862, September, in 1863 January, he obtained permission from the War Department to enlist colored troops and promptly raised the 54th Massachusetts Regent. In 1865, he presided at the first Nas National Unitarian Convention held in New York. Now, I'm going to pause for just a second. The reason I'm having such trouble with some of these sentences is that they are very faded out and sometimes there aren't any letters. 
So if I'm stumbling a lot when I get to the 1909 that uh, over simple, simple words, that's why that's what's going on. But I'm also, you know, before break, I was also getting a little tongue tied. But uh, this one is just really kind of weird to read um, as far as the type. In 1866, he resumed the practice of law in which he continued until his death, which undoubtedly resulted from his excessive labors in connection with the war. He was known as, quote, the war governor, end quote. Okay, and with that, we are going to read a first, the first newspaper clipping. And this is a really old newspaper clipping. The date says 1930 on it. Um, so let me, let me grab that newspaper clipping really quickly. Okay, the first newspaper clipping says Sweden prepares to receive body of August Andre. The battleship will meet vessel bringing remains from the Arctic. Solemn ceremonies planned for Pioneer. Discovery revived speculation about 141 others who never returned. Again, this is from 1930. Oslo, Norway, August 23rd, 1930. Scandinavia, whose peoples for centuries have fared northward for adventure, sustenance, and in the service of science, turned solemn thoughts today to a fitting welcome for one of their all-but-forgotten Arctic pioneers, Solomon August Andre, found dead after 33 years of mystery on the icy wastes of White Island beyond Spitsbergen. First to make guests. The Swedish government took the initiative, ordering a battleship in readiness to go into the Arctic, to meet the sealing vessel Bradvag, which is coming home with the exploration party of Dr. S. Horn and the body of the balloonist scientist who vanished on his ill-fated voyage of July 11, 1897. It was the Horn party which found the Swedish adventurer together with one and maybe both of the daring companions who flew with him into the teeth of death, first balloonists to make the polar quest. The battleship will meet the returning explorers at an appointed rendezvous and either take the famed dead aboard or convoy the ship bearing the grim tokens of a desperate ending of the sensational attempt. Reaching port, the cordage will be greeted with solemn ceremonies. How soon before that day, September 10th, or perhaps somewhat earlier, more details of the tragedy of the North would be obtainable were but a matter for conjecture today. Dispatches from the remote contact which the hoarding ship last made a fishing boat with a wireless outfit indicated an entry in the diary of the expedition placed the lost party's furthest north attainment at 83 degrees north latitude, seemingly seven days after the takeoff from the Danes Island, Spitsbergen. This point is about 475 miles from the North Pole. And I'm going to pause here for just a second. There is one more article um, that we're going to read, and it's actually going to be uh, the diary. So we, are, we do have bits of the diary um, in an article. Okay, so in pause there. Established camp. Evidently, the explorers, or at least Andre himself, lived long enough after being wrecked to establish a well-ordered base in the shelter of a cliff. Moccasins and other equipment of the explorers were found to be well-worn, indicating long, rough usage. Rifles and scientific instruments at Andre's side indicated he was the last survivor. In his diary, yet to be disengaged from its icy covering, will be found the true story of his adventure, which the world so long awaited. The leaves of the diary, written in pencil and expected to prove perfectly legible, 
were frozen so fast together that Dr. Horn found it impossible to open them without risk of serious damage. When Dr. Horn found the camp, he was making geological examinations and surveying the island for the Norwegian government. He has done this for several successive summers in the Svalbard group of islands, which White Island forms a part. In the past month, the weather has been very mild with frequent damp fogs. As a result, the ice melted more freely than usual, making possible the discovery of the camp. So you could possibly say that was providential. Everything worked, worked very well. As Dr. Horn had not finished his summer's work in the Arctic when he found the bodies, he proceeded to Fridtjof Nansen land as he had originally planned. When he has completed studies there, he will return to Norway by way of Tromso, where the Swedish government plans to have him met by the battleship Charles XV. Captain Reiser Larsen, Norway's foremost Arctic explorer, or, I'm sorry, Arctic expert, today expressed the opinion that Andre's balloon had been wrecked out in the ice pack and that the members of the expedition had wandered over the ice seeking food and shelter until they reached White Island. Duty to go on. Captain Otto Sverdrup today remarked that he recalled meeting Andre at Virgo Bay on the day before the start of the expedition and that Andre believed then that his expedition was doomed to failure, but felt it was his duty not to turn back. Dr. Horn is a noted scientist. Some years ago, he did a good deal of work in tropical regions, particularly Trinidad and Venezuela. He is 36 years old. The Bratvag is a ship of only 95 gross tons. She left Tromso on July 31st for Spitsbergen. Dr. Horn's expedition is one sent out annually by the Norwegian government to carry out mapping and geological research in Spitsbergen and other parts of the Arctic. New York, August 23rd. One riddle of the Silent North has been solved with the finding of the bodies of St. Solomon August Andre and of his two companions who flew off toward the North Pole in a balloon 33 years ago. But the Arctic still holds the fates and bodies of 141 other men who, like Andre and his crew, never came back. Twelve of them vanished two years ago this summer, six in the bag of General Imbardo Nobel's... Um, I think that's legible Italia, as it drifted away after the crash on the polar ice cap north of... And it continues. Pull that up. Or unfold it and pull it up. All right. Northeast land, not so very far as the Arctic distances go from the place where Andre's body was found, and six more in a French seaplane in which Captain Roald Amundsen set out from Norway to rescue Nobel. The other 129 perished more than 80 years ago in the vicinity of Baffin Island off the northern coast of Canada with Sir John Franklin, a British explorer, as noted in, it, in his day as... Amundsen, as Amundsen was later, traces discovered. In two ships, the Erebus and the Terror, Sir John and his crew set out on May 19, 1845, with three years' supplies to find a northwest passage to the Pacific. A few weeks later, they sailed from Baffin Bay to Lancaster Sound. Fourteen years passed before any hint of their fate was brought back, and the story was never completed. When no word had come from them after three years, a search began that lasted more than a decade, resulting in the exploration of 7,000 miles of North American Arctic coastline, and the first aroused an Americans an interest in polar exploration. In August 1851, a British searching party found on Beachy Island 
across the Thin Bay from Greenland and about 3,000 miles west of those later tragedies, traces of what later proved to have been the winter camp of Sir John Franklin and his party in 1845 to 1846. Eight more years passed, and in the spring of 1859, a party sent out by Sir John's widow found at Point Victory on King William Island, about 300 miles southwest of Beachy Island and right off the coast of Canada. A few skeletons and some papers tucked away in a carn. Those papers told the history of the expedition to April 25, 1848, the Erebus and the Terror, ice beset since September 12, 1846, had been abandoned as they broke up. Sir John was dead, and so were nine of his officers and 15 of his men. The rest of the party, 104 officers and men, was about to set out on foot, weak from starvation and exposure for civilization. Kit's story by bits. In the years since then, their story has been added to bit by bit. Eskimos told of seeing the white men staggering along over ice and snow, dropping by the trail. How far the last of the 104 traveled probably will never be known. Even in recent years, there have been found among the Eskimos articles identified as having belonged to members of the Franklin expedition. The names of the men who had died were Sir John Franklin have long been forgotten. Oh, who died with Sir John Franklin have long been forgotten. Sir John himself, a hero of Trafalgar, an explorer so distinguished that he was knighted by his king, is remembered only by a memorial tablet in Westminster Abbey and a few columns in the encyclopedia. Perhaps in some future year, when their names too, save that Amundsen, have been forgotten, the stories of those six men who drifted helplessly away on the wreck of the Italia and the five who set out with Amundsen in a French seaplane from Norway to rescue them may be brought back piece by piece. For with equipment of which Sir John and his crew had no conception, man continues his trek into the white silences, answering the call of Salomon Auguste André 33 years ago. And he said, quote, if you never hear from me again, others will follow, end quote. Ah, oh, I just got chills. Okay, and that is the first article that was saved in the encyclopedia. And we will read the second article later um, in this podcast, but it will be the diary that they found, or bits, bits of the diary that they found. So number nine, we have, Saint, we have Order of St. Andrew. And for this one, we are back in the 1909, the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And it just says, Scottish Order of Knighthood, named after the patron saint of Scotland, see Thistle, Comma, Order of the... So we don't have much about it. But let's go to the 1956 Encyclopedia, Andrew of Crete, or Jerusalem, Comma, Saint, or Saint Andrew of Crete, or Jerusalem... And, well, where did he go? Oh, there he is. <laughs> so he was an archbishop and hymnologist, born Damascus around 650 to 660. He died in Mytilene around 732. In his youth, he entered a monastery in Jerusalem, hence his early name. He was ordained deacon in 680 and named Archbishop of Crete about 711. He is held to have originated the musical or Greek canon. Many of his hymns are still in, the, in use in the Eastern Church, and a number were translated into English by John Mason Neal. His feast day is celebrated on the 17th of October. 
And with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. For the next 15 entries, the last name is Andrews. So we have Andrews, Lancelot, DD, and then we have Adolphus, Alexander Boyd, Avery Delano, Charles Bartlett. So those are the next five entries, so 11 through 15. So we are in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 for Lancelot Andrews, DD. And he lived from 1555 to 1625, uh, March 27th. He was born in London. He was an eminent English prelate. At Primbroke Hall, Cambridge, he distinguished himself by industry and acquirements and was in 1576 elected a fellow. He took orders and Washington advanced him in 1589 to be prebendary and canon residentiary of St. Paul's and Master of Pembroke Hall. Queen Elizabeth next testified her esteem by appointing him one of her chaplains in ordinary and a prebendary and dean of Westminster. He rose still higher in favor with King James, attended the Hampton Court Conference as one of the ecclesiastical commissioners, and took part in the translation of the first 12 books of the Old Testament. In 1605, he was consecrated Bishop of Chichester. In 1609, he was translated to the See of Eli and appointed one of his majesty's privy councillors, both for England and Scotland. To the latter country, he accompanied the king in 1617 to persuade the Scotch of the superiority of episcopacy over presbytery. In the following year, he was translated to Winchester, where he died. Bishop Andrews was accepting Usher, the most learned English theologian of his time, as a preacher, he was regarded by his contemporaries as unrivaled, but his excellent qualities suffer much depreciation from his extremely artificial and frigid style. In reply to Cardinal Lerman, he wrote in defense of the right of princes over ecclesiastical assemblies. His other works consist of sermons, lectures, and manuals of devotion. Bishop Andrews was the most eminent of the Anglican school in the 17th century, of which the 19th has seen a faint revival under the name of Pusiasm. Its distinctive peculiarities were high views of ecclesiastical authority and of the efficacy of sacraments and apostolic succession, in opposition to Puritanism. In his whole character and life, he was singularly pious, meek, and charitable, a blameless and noble soul. And the reason you may be wondering, why is Lancelot Andrews first? Well, because his last name, Andrews, is spelled a little differently. So if you want to take a look or take a gander at the spelling of his last name, just uh, visit theoaktreejourneys.com, go to Encyclopedia Challenge, and this is Season 1, Episode 79, and you can see why this Andrews is before the A's. So Lancelot, it's before Adolphus, and there is a reason. So with that, let's go ahead and go to Adolphus Andrews. So Adolphus through Charles Bartlett are all going to be from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So number 12, Adolphus Andrews was a United States Naval officer born Galveston, Texas, October 7th in 1879. He died in Houston, Texas, 
June 19, 1948. He was graduated from the United States Naval Academy in 1901 and studied at the Naval War College in 1920. He attached to the USS Dolphin from 1904 to 1906. He served as junior naval aide to President Theodore Roosevelt. And as gunnery officer on the USS Michigan, he participated in the landing at Veracruz in 1914. In the First World War, he was executive officer of the USS Mississippi from 1917 to 1918. He received the command of the USS Massachusetts in 1918. And from 1922 to 1926, as commander of the USS Mayflower, he was senior naval aide to Presidents Harding and Coolidge, escorting the former to Alaska just prior to his death. He reached the grade of Rear Admiral in 1934 and served as Chief of Staff of the United States Fleet in 1934-1935 and as Chief of the Bureau of Navigation from 1935 to 1938. He commanded the Fleet Scouting Force from 1938 to 1941, meantime having been made Vice Admiral, and in 1941 he was given command of the 3rd Naval District and the North Atlantic Naval Frontier. Early in 1942, when the, the predations of the Axis submarines were continuing at an alarming rate, the United States Navy Department formed a new command, that of the Eastern Sea Frontier, with Vice Admiral Andrews at its head, and the 1st through the 6th Naval Districts united under his control. All anti-submarine measures in this area were entrusted to him together with the routing and planning of convoys and the protection of merchant ships plying the vital sea lanes along the Atlantic coast. Cooperating closely with General Hugh A. Drum of the Army's Eastern Theater of Operations, he played a major part in subduing the U-boat menace and upon his retirement, the 1st of November 1943, was able to announce that in the preceding 15 months, Allied losses in the 300-mile-wide Atlantic coastline stretch between Nova Scotia and Florida had been reduced to a total of but three ships. And number 13, Alexander Boyd Andrews. He was an American railroad executive born near Franklinton, North Carolina, July... 23, 1841, he died in Raleigh, North Carolina, 17th of April, 19, I think that's 15, it's kind of smeared a little bit, so we'll say 1915. He was educated at Henderson Mill Academy, served as a cavalry officer in the Confederate Army in the Civil War until he was incapacitated by wounds in September 1863 and later engaged in railroad promotion in North Carolina, earning a prominent place among the rebuilders of the South in the post-war decades. As an executive connected with the leading railroads in the state, he engineered the building of a number of branch railroads to the great benefit of hitherto neglected regions, the most notable being an extension of the Western North Carolina Railroad through the rugged mountain section of the state. He was president of the Danville and Western, Blue Ridge, Augusta Southern, Tallulah Falls, and the Hartwell Railroads. He served as a trustee of the University of North Carolina. Number 14, Avery Delano Andrews. He was a United States Army officer and lawyer. He was born Messina, New York on the 4th of April, 1864. He was educated at the United States Military Academy where he was graduated BS in 1886. 
He later studied law and received LLB degrees from the Columbia and now George Washington University in 1891 and the, the New York Law School in 1892. He was engaged in practice as a corporation counsel in New York from 1891, was police commissioner of the city from 1895 to 1898, served in the Spanish-American War as a lieutenant colonel of United States Volunteers, and in the First World War went, in, went to France with the American Expeditionary Force as colonel of engineers in the United States Army November 1917. He was made assistant chief of staff to General John J. Pershing in August 1918 and was promoted Brigadier General of the General Staff in October of that year. Awarded the Distinguished Service Medal, he also received decorations from France, Italy, and Belgium. And on 7th of April, 1921, he was made a Brigadier General of the Officers Reserve Corps of the United States Army. He made his wartime diaries the basis of his book entitled My Friend and Classmate, John J. Pershing in 1939. So... He was still alive when the 1956 encyclopedia was uh, was done. Okay, and let's move on to number 14. Aver let's see here. No, I'm sorry. Number 15, Charles Bartlett Andrews. So Charles Bartlett Andrews was an American jurist, born Sunderland, Massachusetts, the 4th of November, 1834. He died Litchfield, Connecticut, the 12th of September, 1902. Graduated at Amherst College in 1858 and later admitted to the Connecticut Bar. He served as governor from 1879 to 1881, was a justice of the state Supreme Court from 1882 to 1889, and chief justice 1889 to 1901. In 1892, as chief justice, he decided the famous Oakley Morris gubernatorial deadlock in favor of Governor Morgan Gardner, Locally, and in 1902, he presided over the Connecticut Constitutional Convention. That is a mouthful, even though it was really, really short. And we will go to break uh, sometime when we get back from break. Um, I'm really, really excited. I've thrown in a bonus word for fun. Um, this is not for any contest. Speaking of contests, um, there was no winner. Uh, made it uh, too hard again. I'm very sorry about that. But we're going to do a bonus word just for fun. Um, it is going to be an A word, um, but it's a, an A word that we passed um, that I didn't do from 1956. But we'll get to that. I'm really excited. And sometime, sometime before the podcast ends, we're also going to read uh, the newspaper article about Andre's diaries. So I'm super, super excited. So don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Welcome back. Uh, if you've forgotten already since break, we are still in Andrews. So I'm just going to read the first names. We have Christopher Columbus, Elisha Benjamin LLD, Ethan Allen, Frank Maxwell, and Israel de Wolf. I love that. Israel de Wolf. <laughs> but for number 16, we are in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 for Christopher Columbus Andrews. And he was an American diplomat, born Hillsborough, New Hampshire, on the 27th of October, 1829. He died in Rochester, Minnesota, 21st of September, 1923. 
He studied at the Harvard Law School and was admitted to the Massachusetts Bar in 1850. He removed to Kansas in 1854 and thence to Minnesota, lo locating successfully at St. Cloud and St. Paul, and during the Civil War served in the Union Army with rank of Brigadier General and Brevet Major General of Volunteers. He was minister to Norway and Sweden from 1869 to 1877, consul general at Rio de Janeiro from 1882 to 1885, and as forestry commissioner of Minnesota from 1895 to 1911, and secretary of the forestry board from 16 of his forestry reports were published, and other works include History of the Campaign of Mobile in 1867, Brazil, Its Condition and Prospects, 1886, 3rd edition, 1895, and Recollections from 1829 to 1922, and that was published in 1928. Okay, number 17 is from the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. So we have Elisha Benjamin Andrews, LLD, and, oh, there he is. He was an American educator, born Hinsdale, New, New Hampshire, in 1844, January 10th. He entered the Union Army in 1861 and rose to second lieutenant. In 1870, he graduated from Brown University and entered Newton Theological Seminary. After ordination and a short posterity of the Baptist Church, he was a professor in Denison University, Granville, I believe that's Oregon, and afterward in Brown University, Providence, Rhode Island. He was professor of history and political economy. Since he went to the chair of political economy at Cornell University, but after one year, he returned to Brown as its president. In 1897, a remonstrance by a committee of the corporation concerning Dr. Andrews' public expression of views favoring the coinage of silver at a ratio of 16 to 1 was interpreted by him as restricting the property liberties of his office. The proper liberties of his office. Thereupon, he resigned and was appointed superintendent of public schools in Chicago, which post he left in 1900 to become chancellor of the University of Nebraska. He has written Institutes of General History in 1887, Institutes of Economics in 1892, An Honest Dollar, 1894, Wealth and Moral Law, 1894, History of the Last Quarter Century in the United States, 1896, History of the United States in Our Own Times, 1904, Colby University conferred on him the degree of DD and the University of Nebraska that of LLD. So yeah, DD and LLD. Usually it has both whenever they have both. It's kind of weird. I wonder how he would feel now about all of this paper money being printed with nothing to back it up. Absolutely nothing to back it up. I wonder how he would feel about that. Um, yeah. So that's all I'm going to say about that. And let's let's do the bonus word just for fun. Um, it's Andrasi Note. So Andrasi Note, and I've got it written down here. Uh, we skipped it uh, when we were in the A-N-D-R-A's, um, so I wanted to go back and look at it because as I was doing the word list for today, I noticed it and I was like, I really want to read this. So this is just for fun, a bonus word I'm throwing in. This is not going to be in the list 
um, on my website. Again, that website is theoaktreejourneys.com. This is not going to be in that list because it's just a bonus word for fun. So an Andrassi note was a note drawn up by Count Duala Andrassi, the terms of which were agreed upon by Russia, Germany, and Austria on December 30th, 1875. It was presented to the Turkish government January 31st, 1876, having been approved by France and Great Britain. The note was occasioned by a revolt of Christian Slavs in Herzegovina against Turkish misrule, which threatened to expand into a general Balkan war. It demanded equal status for Christians and immediate reforms in Bosnia-Herzegovina under a mixed Christian-Muslim commission. The Sultan made promises but gave no evidence of an intention to carry them out. The revolt continued. When it appeared that Serbia and Montenegro were about to enter the conflict, the emperors of Russia, Germany, and Austria-Hungary signed the Berlin Memorandum on May 13, 1876, proposing combined fleet action of the powers against Turkey and enforcement of a two-month armistice. Nothing came of this plan due to British opposition. So, I just wanted to throw that bonus word in there, um, or the bonus entry, really, because it's not just a word. It's a very important part of history. And uh, the Christians wanted equal status, and we fight for equal status all the time um, here in America. And other places still don't have equal status to this day. So if you pray, please pray for those who do not have equal status um, anywhere in the countries. Um, you know, Christians and, and non-Christians alike, uh, we, we are equal. It should be equal. So that's, that's a bonus word and, and my humble opinion thrown in all at once. So let's go to number 18. We have Ethan Allen Andrews, and he is from the Encyclopedia, the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. Sorry, I was going to say the wrong one. But Ethan Allen Andrews was an American scholar born in New Britain, Connecticut, in 1787 on April the 7th. He died there in 1858 on March 4th. He graduated at Yale in 1810, studied law and practiced for some years then taught ancient languages in the University of North Carolina. That's pretty cool. I would have loved to have taken that class. The New Haven Gymnasium from 1822 to 1829 established New Haven Young Ladies Institute in 1830, succeeded Jacob Abbott as head of a young ladies school in Boston from 1833 to 1839. Returning to New Britain, he devoted himself to the publication of a series of Latin textbooks, which soon became widely used throughout the United States. The most important of these were Andrews and St Stoddard's Latin Grammar and Latin English Lexicon in 1850, and a bridge translation with alterations and additions of Franz Waterbuch Der Latinische Sprache. I hope I said that right. I probably didn't. My apologies for those of you who know German. Um, so I think it should be Waterbuch. Um, but again, I think I just misspelled that. Or mispronounce that again. Alright, I'm going to stop. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to stop right there. And we're going to move on to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 for numbers 19 and 20. So I have Frank Maxwell Andrews. And he was a United States Army officer born Nash Ooh, Nashville, Tennessee. February 3rd, 1884. He died in, on active duty in an airplane crash over Iceland on May 3rd, 1943. 
A graduate of the United States Military Academy in 1906, he was connected with the aviation section of the Signal Corps in the United States during World War I, earning his pilot's wings in 1918. He served with the United States Army of Occupation in Germany from 1920 to 1923, and after a varied career became a member of the general staff in 1934. From 1935 to 1939, he organized and commanded the General Headquarters Air Force, holding temporary rank of Brigadier General and later Major General over his regular Army rank of Colonel. One of the best informed men in military aviation and a skilled pilot with a fine flying record, General Andrews advocated a strong Air Force and urged as early as 1935 the construction of great fleets of four-motored bombers. He held the latter the only practicable defense in the air since in sufficient numbers the bombers could defeat an enemy power by striking at its bases and destroying its planes on the ground. He had a good point. I don't like war, but he had a good point. General Andrews served again on the general staff in 1939 to 1940, and in the latter year was assigned to command the Panama Canal Zone. Oh, I believe um, a local congregation here uh, went to, uh, to the Panama Canal uh, for mission work. I'm pretty sure that's where they went. I need to check up on that. Um, it was mentioned during church last Wednesday, and I just... And I meant to look it up to see how it all went. Um, but if, if I have any listeners uh, and you were a missionary at the Panama Canal from Central Church of Christ, that's awesome. Let me know how you did. You can email me at mandyoaks at protonmail.com. Um, and yeah, just, just let me know how it went. His responsibilities later being extended to include command of all Caribbean military forces. In November of 1942... Upon the launching of the Allied Offensive in North Africa, he was placed at the head of the United States troops in the Middle East with headquarters at Cairo, Egypt. He represented that command at the Roosevelt-Churchill Conference at Casablanca, French Morocco, in January 1942. In 1943, he was appointed to command all the United States forces in the European theater of war and in cooperation with Major General Ira C. Eager, chief of the 8th United States Air Force, he launched the highly increased daylight bombing of Germany that marked the air campaign of that year. Okay, number 20, Israel de Wolf Andrews. I just, I love that name, Israel de Wolf, or Israel de Wolf uh, Andrews. He was an American trade promoter, so it would be Israel de Wolf. <laughs> but he was born in Campobella, New Brunswick, Canada, or Eastport, Maine. Um, they're not sure where he was born. He was either born in Canada or Maine. Uh, that may have been one of those border cities where it could have just gone either way. But he was born around 1813. They're not really sure. He died in Boston, Massachusetts, February 17, 1871. While serving as American consul to New Brunswick in 1849, he was appointed an agent of the United States government to make a study of commerce in British North America in which capacity he gathered extensive data on Canadian trade and navigation. He was instrumental in obtaining United States rights in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick fisheries in exchange for the acceptance of Canadian goods in United States markets. Which I'm so glad because I get some Canadian goods that are every now and then that are really nice. Subsequently becoming the chief promoter of the Canadian-American Reciprocity Treaty of 1854. 
Although suspected of trying to collect identical funds from both governments to cover his expenses as a trade promoter, Andrews never profited personally and in later years was repeatedly in debt. I can certainly relate to that part of his story at any rate. And with that, let's go ahead and go to break and sometime, as promised, we will read the second news article about the journal. And welcome back! Our next set of five entries, we're still on Andrews, so we have John Roy, uh, I'm sorry, John Roy Chapman, Samuel James, Stephen Pearl, and Thomas. But before we read those uh, entries, uh, I'm going to read the uh, last newspaper article from, this time someone wrote it down, it's from the Roanoke Times. So from the Roanoke Times, and let me get the right page, there are two pages, it's rather lengthy, but it's about the diary. It said, Secret of Andre's Landing in Arctic Revealed by Diary. Flight ended 500 miles from Pole. Efforts to reach food fell when ice drift suddenly shifts. Secured valuable data. Leader believed clay, moss, and wood found would aid future study. By Ulrich Salchoy, Associated Press Correspondent. Stockholm, September 19th. Solomon August Andre and his two comrades on their pioneer polar balloon expedition 33 years ago failed by 500 miles in their attempt to reach the North Pole and three days after setting out from Danes Island, Spitsbergen, came down on the Arctic ice wilderness. Examination of the diary found on Andre's body after Dr. Gunnar Horn's expedition had brought it back to Tromsø, Norway, has revealed the secret of the party's landing and wanderings until they made the camp on desolate White Island where they were destined to perish. Camp for a week. After coming... Coming down through an unknown cause in latitude 83 north, longitude 30 east, the explorers remained encamped on the ice for a week. On July 22nd, 11 days after they flew away from Spitsbergen, they abandoned their temporary shelter and set out on the long trek back to civilization. The doomed men, day after day, the diary reveals, struggled on towards safety in a constant battle with the creaking treacherous ice and deep pools of fresh water which they had to cross with their frail canvas boat. They marched not toward the northern coast of Spitsbergen, whence their balloon had brought them and where food depots had been prepared, but in a more easterly direction. Their course was toward the little-known regions north of Fridtjof Nansen Land, then known as Franz Josef Land. The distance they covered each day varied considerably, but they never could do better than a few miles. Their astronomical observations show that the westward drift of the rough ice over which they painfully made their way had begun to prove too much for them. Abandoned route. Finally, on August 4th, when they had been marching for about 13 days, the heroic little band, defeated by the drift in their efforts to the east, were forced to abandon this route. Giving in to the drift, they decided to utilize it on a belated attempt to reach the Seven Islands off Spitsbergen and turned southwestward. On the seven islands they knew was an important food depot. In starting the new march, they in, were in latitude 82.17 north and longitude 22.43 east. This was roughly 60 miles east and slightly south of the point where they had come down in their balloon. In the 13 days it had taken them to conquer this distance, their provisions had begun to run low. 
The scanty supply salvaged from the balloon's gondola had to be eked out by chance kills of polar bears, the wandering meat shops of the Arctic, as Andre calls them in the diary. Rations run short. With each successful kill, the prospects of the explorers brightened and their hopes were renewed. But there came a time when there were no more bears, and hunger pangs warned them that starvation might follow. All felt the weakening effect of short rations. During this long and painful trudge over the crumbling, treacherous ice, one after another of the three dauntless explorers fell into the pools which dot the ice surface or into concealed crevices. Nut, Frankel, and the Nils Strindberg suffered periodically from bruised feet and severe attacks of diarrhea. But the diary shows that despite their sufferings, they never lost heart. Heartened by Andre, they kept up one another's spirits with jokes and laughter. The leader of the expedition showed his heroism in many ways. In the face of the terrors and fatigues and uncertainty of the trek, Andre continued conscientiously to fill his diary day by day with scientific observations of the utmost interest. Not only did he do this, but when every ounce of extra weight must have added to the already burdensome difficulties of the explorers, he collected samples of interesting finds along the line of march. Dried clay on chest. He notes some 20 bits of clay, gravel, moss, and driftwood that he picked up on the ice. One of the samples he dried on his bare chest. Throughout the diary, the entries frequently show his solitude for these specimens, which he believed might prove of great importance in future study of the polar ice drift. Thus, slowly and painfully, the three explorers approached the northern coast of Spitsbergen, wearily making on foot a long journey than only a few weeks before they had sailed by balloon. Their chief respite from fatigue was an opportunity from time to time to load the whole of their equipment in the canvas boat that they had frequently used since leaving the balloon. To row a few miles amid the ice floes in the occasional open water of the Arctic, even in this fragile boat, was to enjoy a few hours of comparative rest. Hunger at the same time sharpened their skill to picking up nourishment from the most unpromising sources on or under the surface of the ice. Nut Frankel became adept in preparing what Andre calls a blood pancake as a substitute for bread. Nils Strindberg's specialty was creating dishes from the raw materials of seaweed. Drift changes. Off the northern coast of Northeast Land in the Spitsbergen group, the explorers reached shallower waters and here suddenly the direction of the ice drift began to change. The effect of the changed drift immediately was to cut them off even from their goal on the Seven Islands. Between September 12th, about a month after they left Danes Island on the polar flight, and September 17th, the ice drifted with the hapless explorers for more than 100 kilometers in an east-southeast direction, steadily bearing them away from the food depot. Meanwhile, autumn was at hand, the days were growing shorter and shorter, and the cold was becoming increasingly bitter. The explorer's insufficient nourishment made cold all the harder to bear. Marooned on the drifting ice, the three men at length resigned themselves to spending a Crusoe-like winter of isolation on a suitable ice float. They set to work building what Diary describes as an ice cot. At last, on September 17th, they sighted the tall, ghostly peak of White Island, the first land they had seen since flying from Spitsbergen on July 11th. In his diary, Andre called it New Iceland. The sighting of land also brought them good luck in hunting. On the next day, they killed their first seal, and on the 19th, they bagged three more. On the 20th, after a long fast from bear meat, they managed to kill a polar bear. Food cheers them. The increased food supplies sent their spirits soaring. Andre notes the stroke of good fortune and estimates that his little band would have sufficient food to last until the April following. 
A week later, the three explorers moved into their newly finished ice cabin in the drifting floe. They christened it The Home. But disaster was just around the corner. A few days later, on the morning of October 2nd, it struck them. The ice floe in which they had built their little home suddenly split up with a thunderous sound, and the house of ice was shattered into a hundred pieces. Worst of all, the party's equipment and provisions were dispersed and drifted about on chunks of the original ice floe. In desperation, the explorers had to plunge into the icy waters to rescue them. In the midst of this unexpected blow, struck in sight of land. Andre found too much to do to continue the heroic work of noting scientific specimens or even the account of their misfortunes. The diary abruptly comes to an end, but his last entry is one of courage and hope, not of despair. Quote, with... I'm going to cry. Give me just a second. Okay. Quote, with such companions, writes the leader of the expedition, everything will go on all right in almost any circumstances. I'm going to read that again. With such companions, everything will go on all right in almost every circumstances. Wow, that is just, ooh, I want to cry. All clung together. With this sturdy defiance of misfortune, ends the record of the three wanderers over the Arctic ice and seas from the end of their balloon flight to the sighting of the land that sheltered them until death. How they reached it is not recorded in this diary. But in addition to the vivid account of the march, the diary settles the fact that all three clung together through the worst and implies that they reached White Island still together. It was there, in a camp laid bare by melting snows and ice during an unusually warm and damp Arctic summer, that Dr. Gunnar Horn, Norwegian scientist and explorer on August 6th, at last solved the riddle of their fate and brought back to the world the record of their sufferings. Thought of Record Solomon August Andre, in dying... On Lonely White Island, apparently the last survivor of his expedition gave his last thought to the preservation of the record of his wanderings and hardships on the polar flight attempt. A diary in which virtually every page had been written on was found inside his clothing when his body and the other relics of his expedition brought back by Dr. Gunnar Horn were examined, examined at Tromso by Swedish and Norwegian experts. It had been wrapped carefully and securely placed at his back. As his body was found in a reclining position beside the White Island camp, it is, as, it is assumed that on feeling the approach of death, he lay down upon his precious record and protected it even in death with his body. Tromso, Norway, September 19th. Coffins containing the earthly remains of Solomon August Andre, Nils Strindberg, and Knut Frankel, pioneer polar aeronautic explorers, were carried aboard the Swedish gunboat Spenskan today and started on the last part of their journey home to an honored resting place in Stockholm. The transfer of the coffins from Tromso Cathedral to the decks of the gunboat was accompanied by impressive ceremonies. In the cathedral, they were formally handed over to the Swedish authorities by Norwegian officials. Officers of the gunboat and of the Norwegian government steamer Michael Sars formed a guard of honor. The coffins were borne by Swedish sailors through crowded streets to the quay near which the Svenskund was lying. As they were taken aboard the gunboat, a band played the Swedish national anthem. Flowers were heaped upon them until they were practically hidden. The Svenskund immediately sailed from Stockholm, followed by the Michael Sars, which will accompany her for part of the voyage. And that is the uh, last article that was saved in the 1909 New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary. 
Okay, so let's uh, go on to our entries before I start crying my eyes out because that was just, that was moving. And if, if you don't think it was moving, that's okay. Um, I thought it was quite moving. But uh, let's move on to entry number 21, John Andrews. And he was an English poet and clergyman born Somersetshire around 1583, they think. He died after 1655. Little is known of his life, the best source being the Oxford antiquarian Anthony A. Wood, who describes him in his Athenia Oxenesis in London, 1695, as having entered Trinity College in 1601 at the age of 18, received the degree of M.A. and, be and became a, quote, painful preacher of God's word and a publisher of certain books, end quote. Andrews was a curate or assistant in Barrett, or Beswick, Set in the county of Wilts, he is known chiefly as the author of the poetical work Anatomy of Bassanus, 1615. Other verses of his are interspersed throughout his religious writings, among which are Converted Man's New Birth, 1629, and Andrew's Caveat to Win Sinners, newly published by John Andrews, Preacher of God's Word, 1655, which is interesting because he's got his name spelled a little differently so I'm just taking a quick peek okay yeah okay okay he's he's spelling his name with an ES instead of a WS but the encyclopedia has it as WS so I just thought that was a little odd Okay, Roy Chapman Andrews, and we are still in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So Roy Chapman Andrews was an American explorer, zoologist, and author. He was born in Beloit, Wisconsin, January 26, 1884. After receiving his BA degree from Beloit College in 1906, he went to work for the American Museum of Natural History in New York. His first field assignment, securing the skeleton of a well beached at Amagansett, Long Island, started him on a line of scientific investigation that was to establish him as the world's greatest authority on wells. That's pretty cool. While the specimens he gathered for the museum gave its collection of cetaceans a similar rating. He carried out an expedition to the welling stations of Vancouver Island in Alaska in 1908, served as special natu naturalist on the USS Albatross on an exploring voyage to the Netherlands, East Indies in 1909 to 1910, and hunted the gray whale in the waters around Korea in 1911. His first important land exploration in 1911 to 1912 led him into then unknown country around Paktusan in northern Korea. Wow, northern Korea. <laughs> Can you imagine... Trying to go there now, uh, near the Manchurian border. He was with the Borden, Alaska expedition in 1913, and in the same year received his MA degree from Columbia University. Andrews led expeditions into the mountains of southwestern China and Burma in 1916, northern China and outer Mongolia in 1919, and Central Asia from 1921 to 1930. Among the highlights of the discoveries were the first dinosaur eggs. Ooh, wow! The first dinosaur eggs known to science, the first dinosaurs found in Asia north of the Himalayas, remains of the first 
Titanotheries discovered elsewhere than in North America. Skulls and parts of the skeleton of the Belucetherium, largest land mammal known to have existed on Earth, and evidence that men of the Old Stone Age lived in Central Asia. The scientific reports of the expedition were published in 12 quarto volumes under the title The Natural History of Central Asia. Andrews was appointed director of the museum in 1935, but resigned in 1941 to devote himself to writing. Aw, oh, so cool. His books include Whale Hunting with Gun and Camera, 1916, Camps and Trails in China, 1918, Across Magnolian Plains in 1921, On the Trail of Ancient Man, 1926, Ends of the Earth, 1929, The New Conquest of Central Asia, 1932, This Business of Exploring, 1935, This Amazing Planet, 1940, Under a Lucky Star, Autobiography, 1943, Meet Your Ancestors, 1945, An Explorer Comes Home, 1947, Quest in the Desert, 1950, Heart of Asia, 1951, and Nature's Ways, 1951. Wow, he did a lot of writing. I wonder if he had any more because it it doesn't say that he was dead, that he had died yet when this was written. So I bet, I bet he was still alive uh, when this was written. Okay, so let's switch back over to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 for numbers 23 and 24. So number 23, we have Samuel James Andrews. He was an American clerk, clergyman. Born Danbury, Connecticut, 1817, on July 31st. He died in 1906, October 11th. He graduated at Williams College in 1839. He was admitted to the bar in Connecticut and Ohio and practiced law in those states from 1842 to 1844. He then studied at Lane Theological Seminary, ordained at, in Congregational Ministry in 1846, Pastor East Windsor, Connecticut, 1848-1855, adopted the Irvingite doctrines and was in charge of a Catholic and Apostolic Church congregation in Hartford, Connecticut, from 1868 until his death. Author of Life of Our Lord Upon Earth, 1862, God's Revelations of, his, of Himself to Men, 1885, Christianity and Anti-Christianity in Their Final Conflict, 1898, the Church and Its Organic Ministries, 1899. William Watson Andrews, A Religious Biography in 1900. Man in the Incarnation, 1905. Okay, and number 24, Stephen Pearl Andrews, an American author, born Templeton, Massachusetts, 1812, March 22nd. He died in New York City, 1886, on May 21st. He was educated at Amherst, practiced law in New Orleans and Texas. His enthusiastic advocacy of the abolition of slavery took him to England in 1843 to raise money to pay for the slaves and make Texas free. That's really cool. He learned phonography in England and became the founder in this country of the present system of phonographic reporting. So the present system of phonographic reporting uh, is no longer the present system, <laughs> um, as you know, because this is the early 1900s, uh, editing journals devoted to it and publishing numerous instruction books. In 1882, he instituted the Colloquium, a series of conferences for the exchange of opinions between leading New York clergymen and others of the widest diversity of religious, philosophical, and political views. His chief works are Discoveries in Chinese in 1854, 
Synopsis of Universology and Owato in 1871, Basic Outline of Universology in 1872, Grammar of Owato in 1877, Transactions of Colloquium, Volumes 1 and 2 from 1882 to 1883, The Church and Religion of the Future, 1886. Okay, and number 25, we have Thomas Andrews, and for him, we are going to go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So Thomas Andrews was an Irish chemist and physicist who was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, December 19th in 1813. He died there on November 26th in 1885. He studied in Glasgow, Dublin, Belfast, and Edinburgh, where he received an MD degree, so it should say Dr. Thomas Andrews, in 1835. From 1835 to 1845, he practiced medicine in Belfast and taught chemistry at the Royal Belfast Academical Institution. In 1845, he was appointed vice president of Northern College, later Queen's College, Belfast, and in 1849 became professor of chemistry at Queen's College, a post he retained until his retirement in 1879. His work in chemical research brought him recognition as early as 1844, when the Royal Society awarded him a medal for his investigations of heat developed in certain chemical processes, and he gained further acclaim for his findings in the study of ozone. He is best known, however, for his exhaustive research into the liquefaction of gases. So there we go. And with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Our last set of five entries we have the last Andrews, so Andrews, comma, William Draper. And we have Andrea Yiff, comma, Leonid Nikolovic. We have Andrea, Andre, comma, Francois Gulliam, and Andrescus. Okay. And before I get uh, to our 26th entry, uh, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who's been praying for me. Um, and, and some situations that have been going on, you know who you are, uh, and if you want to pray, uh, please do. I just want to read, um, some verses before we get, get started into entry number 26. Uh, from James 5, uh, we'll start with 13. So 13, um, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And I, we could talk about that part of that verse later. Uh, I do have some, some things going on. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I love that. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And if you don't think your prayers have been working for me, they have. Uh, I could cry. I've been so blessed with so many prayers. Thank you so much. I'm going to go ahead and move on to verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way 
will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So that was James 5, verses 13 through 20. Um, and remember whenever I said, you know, we can't stop time? Well, without divine intervention. So if we prayed for time to stop, I'm wondering if it would stop. Um, with these, based on these verses, but I just so much appreciate your prayers. Keep them coming because there is a light at the end of the tunnel, um, but there's more. There are more things going on. Uh, there will be more. Hopefully after, after this light ends, there will be another tunnel. So please continue the prayers. I'm not at liberty to say exactly what's going on, but but please just keep the prayers coming. I definitely appreciate them and they have been working um, and, and again, I, I could just, I'm overwhelmed with the amount of, of prayers I've gotten. So thank you. So let's move on to number 26, um, Andrews, William Draper, or William Draper Andrews. And we are in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary for, for him. And he was an American inventor. And I love inventors. You know, I love inventors. It's not necessarily the scientists that get things done. It's the inventors and engineers. And if you don't believe that... If you haven't recognized that yet, go back and listen to uh, some more of the uh, encyclopedia entries. Um, but he was an American inventor, born Grafton, Massachusetts in 1818. He died in 1896. In 1844, he invented the centrifugal pump, which made it possible to save goods not injured by water from abandoned wrecks. The pump was, let's see, the pump was manufactured in England as the wind pump, was patented in the United States in 1846. Later, he invented and patented the anti-friction centrifugal pump, made various modifications of centrifugal pumps, and patented a widely used system of gangs of tube wells. So there we go. So inventors are so, so cool. They made our lives so much easier. So, so much easier. So if you are an inventor uh, or an entrepreneur or an engineer, my hat is off to you. I appreciate you very, very much. And uh, before we move on to number 27, I've got a little note here. If you are in my part of Tennessee, um, the first Sunday of next month, which is coming up very quickly, it's just a week from today, uh, if you are here September 4th in this little area, Mountain View Church of Christ in Bluff City is having a potluck because it is the first Sunday and I am thinking about, I've got a really nice turkey um, that I haven't had a chance, I haven't had an occasion to make it for. Uh, but I think this will be the occasion for it. I might make that. I need to, uh, I usually make something really simple with cheese on top and, you know, sometimes with rice. Yeah, I make really simple dishes. But I'm thinking I might, I might do that. But there will be plenty of food, regardless if that's, what I make, if, if I've got time to make it, I'll make it. But regardless of whether or not I make that or another dish, we have really good food. My sister makes amazing food. Um, the preacher Clarence Cannon or Bubba uh, usually has something. And we've got Dimple and Virginia who have uh, things. So just come on and, and eat with us. It's a really fun time. We get to know one another. We get to talk, spend time together. Um, and we get to eat, which everyone loves to do. And you never know what kind of desserts these ladies make. These ladies make amazing desserts. I cannot partake of them because they're glutinous, but but they are 
amazing. They look amazing. Uh, people rave over them. So you can just come for the desserts if that's all you come for. But let's move on to number 27 from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. We have Andrea Yip, Leonid Nikolovic, or Leonid Nikolovic Andrea Yip. And if you want to know how to spell his name, which is a cool name, and I hope I didn't butcher it, um, go to theoaktreejourneys.com, select Encyclopedia Challenge, and this is Season 1, Episode 79, and his name is number 27 on the list. Okay, he was a Russian writer. Love the writers, too. My hat's off if you are a writer. Born Orel, Orel June 18th, 1871. He died in Kokola, Finland. September 12, 1919. After studying law at St. Petersburg and Moscow universities, he found himself temperamentally unsuited to the task of earning a living and in despair attempted suicide in 1894. He finally found a position as a police court reporter in Moscow, and this experience led him to write short stories. I'm so glad he didn't he didn't go through, um, but, I, but I can understand. Um, his first story... Bargamot's I. Goroska, published in a daily newspaper in 1898, attracted the attention of Maxim Gorky, who encouraged the young writer. Publication of other stories, as well as essays and plays, followed. The first collection of his stories was issued in 1901 and sold more than 250,000 copies. That's pretty cool. Thereafter, he became increasingly successful. Opposed to the ball. Bolshevik regime, he fled Russia for Finland, where he died in poverty. Andrea Yov was a skeptic and a fatalist, and his writings mirrored the disillusionment of contemporary intellectuals. His style, often brilliant, was at first realistic, but later became symbolic and allegoric. English translations, which I do want to, I want to make a note to myself to uh, look into to his English translations, um, they include The Red Laugh of 1905, A Protest Against War, To the Stars in 1907, and The Seven Who Were Hanged in 1909. Plays influenced by the Russian Revolution of 1905 are Anathema in 1910, A Dilemma in 1910, King Hunger 1911, The Life of Man 1914, A Morality Play, Sava 1914, A Play, Plays 1915, A Collection Including the Black Maskers, the Little Angel and Other Stories in 1916, When the King Loses His Head and Other Stories in 1920, Satan's Diary in 1920, and Samson in Chains in 1923. So there's about him. And before I move on to number 28, I just have to say uh, I've joined the reading club. I'm very grateful. Um, so thank you guys, uh, Harley and Charlie and Delma and... Uh, and Daryl, and I can't remember the others uh, right now, uh, but thank you all so much for including me uh, in, in the uh, reading group. I appreciate it. And uh, next month, we are going to be reading Noah Trevor's book. Um, let, me, I, let me think what it's called. Oh, my apologies, Trevor Noah. <laughs> Trevor Noah's book. I was doing the last name first because encyclopedias, but Trevor Noah's book, book Born a Crime, I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, I've heard lots of stories about South Africa from my family who, who lived there at one point. And, now, and um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. I read some of it. Uh, it seems really, really good. And I've read um, 
bits of ADHD does not exist. I don't remember who that's by, but I didn't read all of it because that's more of a book I would turn to for research, but it is very good. Um, it's not very well received. Um, I understand exactly what he's saying, and my analogy of it would be thus. And if you, you may not, you may or may not like this analogy, but my analogy of it, um, in a nutshell, is we treat symptoms like headaches. So if you get a headache, I, I remember a few years ago, I was getting headaches and migraines daily. Every, and I know a lot of people suffer from them. I've got a cousin who suffers from migraines that she has for weeks at a time. That is a symptom of a deeper problem. Um, it, your body's telling you something's wrong. And so what he's basically saying is, is ADHD, it, it does exist. Uh, he's not saying, that the title is very controversial. It's to get you to buy the book, obviously. Um, he's not saying that it doesn't exist, but it's a symptom of a larger problem. And it could... It, and he lists what symptoms there are, and he goes into great detail. I mean, what, what the um, larger problems could be. And I know for me, with my headaches, it was a problem of stress, eye strain, and lack of vitamins, as well as lack of appropriate exercise. Now, I was eating. I was eating um, really well at that time, but probably not the best, but I was slowly taking baby steps to eating healthier and better. I, I believe I was on a weightlifter's diet for a little while, and then I, oh, I know what it was. I stopped being on the weightlifter's diet, and I stopped lifting weights, and I also had more stress and more eye strain, um, but I also lacked a lot of vitamins because I stopped the weightlifting and the weightlifting diet. Um, so whenever I took care of all of those things, um, that helped ease my headaches. Now, I still get migraines every now and then. Uh, thankfully, not as often. It's usually caused by anxiety or stress, and it has to be a really deep anxiety or stress. But I would encourage you, if you are suffering from ADHD or you want to know a little more about it, um, I would encourage you to get the book, ADHD Does Not Exist, and read it with an open mind. Um, it is... It is not one that, if, if you don't, if you're not ready to hear a different view of it other than the contemporary view, this is, you're not going to like it. Uh, but it's by Dr. Richard Saul, Dr. Richard Saul, ADHD does not exist. And again, if you do read it, just keep, you know, keep in mind, this is not the contemporary way of thinking. You know, um, I believe in a holistic way of thinking. Because I didn't, I didn't read the entire book. I'm not sure if he believes in a holistic way of thinking. But you have to treat everything. We, our society just wants to pump us up with pharmaceuticals to treat the symptoms and not what's actually going on. And so he sees that as a problem too. And so I think that's why the book is very, very important. Um, and if I had the time and if I were going to do a research uh, project uh, or a story... Um, with an, and I might, I might do that later. I would totally read the entire book. Uh, but I read the first few chapters and then I skimmed through and, and read and got and read uh, here and there the rest of it. Um, but excellent. Uh, excellent work um, as far as what I read. Now I can't 
for the parts I didn't read, can't really speak to that, but yeah, he's a very non-contemporary uh, thinker, and I, and I appreciate those. Okay, so let's go ahead and move on to number 29, I'm sorry, number 28, Andrea, Andrea, and we are in the New Imperial Encyclopedia of 1909. It is a city of South Italy, province of Bari, 31 miles west from the town of Bari. It stands on a plain, and in its vicinity are numerous caverns, whence its name. Its cathedral, a fine edifice, was founded in 1046. During the wars of the Par Parthenopian Republic, it was besieged by the Republican army under General Brusier, and being taken after a gallant resistance was burned at the suggestion of Atir Carolfa, Count of Ruvo, himself its feudal lord. Ooh, wow. The neighboring country is famous for its almonds, which are a principal article of trade of the city. The population in the early 1900s was 39,493. There we go. All right, and we are done with the 1909 encyclopedia. So let me just put this away. I've got to carefully put the paper clippings back in there. And number 29, we are going to switch back over to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 for the last two entries. So we have Andriu, Andriu, comma, Francois Guillaume, or Francois, oh, I missed part of the, uh, his name. He was a French poet and playwright, so let me get his full name in here. Francois Guillaume Jean Stanislas. Andriu. So Andriu is spelled really cool. It's a cool spelling. Um, so I would encourage you to to uh, go to theoaktreejourneys.com, go to season one, episode 79, and he is number 29. But he was a poet, French poet and playwright, born Strasbourg in May 6, 1759. He died Paris May 9, 1833. He was educated first in Strasbourg and then in Paris, where he studied law. In 1798, he became a member of the Council of 500, and after the establishment of the consulate, a member of the tribunate, of which he was made president. Because of his opposition to the Code Napoleon, he resigned his post and thereafter devoted himself to teaching and writing. He was professor of grammar and literature at the École Polytechnique, and after 1814, professor of French literature at the College de France. From 1829, he served as permanent secretary of the French Academy and proved a strong opponent of the Romantic movement. Andreu's plays are typical 18th century comedies of intrigue. Les Etardes, his best work, was presented in 1788 and won for the author the praise of Jean-Francois de la Harpe, in 1804, appeared La Source de Le Tresor and Molière avec ses amas. Other plays include La Val Fox, 1810, and La Comédienne, 1816, both comedies, and Lucius Junius Bruis, in 1830, a tragedy. Andreu was the, also the author of some excellent stories and fables, but they do not have them listed here. <laughs> so I can't tell you what they are. You'll have to look him up yourself. Number 30. We have Andriscus. And this is pretty cool. So we, we've studied, it seems like the theme 
uh, throughout has been about adventure. And that's partially because of the newspaper clippings. Um, but on Driscus was a Greek adventurer. Um, it says FL 2nd century BC. So he lived around, I think, around the 2nd century BC. He was a native of Andromatium, now Edremit, Asia Minor. He claimed to be Philip, son of Perseus, last king of Macedonia. With Thracian aid, he conquered Macedonia and established himself in control by 149 BC. In the following year, however, he was defeated by Quintus Silius Metellus in the Fourth Macedonian War and was sent to Rome as a captive and executed. Man, a lot of these adventurers just met, did not have a good ending, did they? Okay, and with that, that is our last entry. Um, of this week. So I appreciate all of you for sticking around and listening. And again, if you are in my part of Tennessee, I encourage you to come to Mountain View uh, Church of Christ in Bluff City, Tennessee. Um, well, today, if you're, if you are in the area, but um, also next week. Uh, so next Sunday. And uh, Sunday school starts at 10 a.m. And church services start at 11 a.m. That's Eastern Time. Um, and the meal is after, it's around noon, a little afternoon, uh, to give people time to go over there. Uh, but it's a really good time, so I, I would encourage you to come if, if you are in the area. Okay, and before we go, let's go ahead and read Donna Hedges' quote one more time. So, quote of the month, having a place to go is a home, having someone to love is a family, having both is a blessing. And I pray that everyone is blessed this week and the rest of the year and next year, the, your entire life basically. But I do hope you have a blessed week. And with that, I bid you adieu.